Welcome to the Changing Construction Podcast, brought to you by Mail Manager, the email management solution developed by Arup to solve your email headache overnight. It's Chris here from Mail Manager, and I'm delighted to be joined today by one of the leading thinkers on the future of industrialised construction, Jamie Johnson. How are you doing, Jamie? Yeah, very good, thanks. And uh, yeah, thanks for the invite. Looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, well, welcome to the show. So, Jamie, you're the Director and Head of Global Systems at Brighton Wood and Design Lead for the Construction Innovation Hub. But today we're going to be talking about data-driven construction and the use of platforms and a little bit about the future of the industry as well. But to start, perhaps you could introduce yourself to our listeners and give a bit of background about your journey in construction to date. Yeah, okay. So I'm an architect by training, but it's increasingly hard to tell that anymore. I joined Brydenwood very soon after the company started, so 95, so I was employee number one. And we were initially a team of architects, but we always had a, an interest in what a more manufacturing-led sector would look like, or how, how could we get all the benefits that manufacturing seen into construction in terms of productivity and safety and speed and quality, etc. So we thought that design for manufacturing assembly was at least a, a large part of the answer. So we kind of set ourselves up to develop DFMA solutions. What we found is to do that properly, we had to be very much more integrated So I think lots of organisations are multi-dis, but they still treat the disciplines as individual disciplines. What we've tried to do is become more like, say, automotive, where you you don't have the pipes person, the wires person, the wheels person. It's much more of a a holistic team. So we've developed a whole range of capabilities all in the service of, of DFMA. And where we thought initially it was very much a physical thing, actually what we found is that to do it properly, you need to have a whole range of digital tools. You need to be working in a 3D environment. You need to be much more coordinated at the design stage. And so what we've seen over time is that our digital capabilities increased enormously since we started and it kind of moves in lockstep so we never think of the digital or physical as separate entities they're they're interdependent parts of the same way of working yeah absolutely and i think um that being holistic is obviously more than ever important in in the post-covid world so perhaps if we set the scene a little bit there's a need now more than ever to to do more for less and improve productivity but how would you assess the current state of play in terms of digital capabilities across the board and where do you think the current opportunities are? So I think there was obviously the, in my head, BIM was a precursor to everything that needed to follow. So I think BIM was never never intended to be a kind of standalone initiative. We always, when we started talking to government about it, said, look, it's it's the start of a journey. Once you had get the hang of BIM, that enables you know low carbon and lean and the FMA and a load of other initiatives that follow. So I think obviously there was a huge push to get the, the industry ready for that. I thought the government were very, their strategy of a kind of providing lots of standards and things, but providing lots of support and providing a pipeline, I thought was a, was a sort of fantastic way of incentivizing people to adopt BIM. I suppose I think we've hit a point where the disparity, I think, between those that are really pushing the digital agenda and those that are lagging is now huge. I think the gulf between the kind of Mm. digital rich and the digital poor, if I can put it that way, is, is quite large. So I don't think I think people have generally got the hang of BIM, but I think people are doing it quite inconsistently across the patch. I still think one of the key drivers of BIM was to get benefit for clients and I'm not sure that's still happening. I think consultants and contractors are using BIM for their own benefit and to make their jobs easy. I'm not sure they're necessarily handing the benefit over to the clients. So I think it still hasn't kind of hit the, the point where it's enabling much better ways of working. It's done consistently across the patch. Everyone's working the same way and you get that kind of interoperability of data. So I think we're still a bit 
yeah, we've still got some some long ways to go. Well, at the same time, there's people that are really pushing the agenda in terms of generative design and VR, AR, robotics, a load of other digital initiatives that, that BIM was supposed to start. So I think we're just starting to see a gap open up between those that are pushing it and those that are still adopting it. Yeah. And you mentioned uh, automotive and manufacturing earlier, but what do you think the potential of IoT and automation is for, for the construction industry? So again, I think there's a sort of sequence of events that needs to happen. One of the things that people have probably seen we're very much focused on is this idea of plat- construction platforms, which are standardized components that can be configured in lots of different ways to create lots of different assets. I think that is a starting point for a load of other things that happen. So once you have your components, then you can write the rule sets around them. That unlocks automation in the design. It unlocks potential for robotics, automation on site. So you suddenly unlock a whole load of digital things that you can't get your hands on otherwise. I also think there's, there was always talk in the early days of BIM about the feedback loop. So this idea that you've probably seen the slides that operational data from assets gets interrogated and fed into the start of the process and helps you make better business decisions and therefore write better briefs and therefore design better assets. That isn't happening, I think, partly because there's a sort of spark gap at the middle where the tools aren't quite ready. But I think primarily because every building is a prototype, the data that comes out, if it's structured and usable in some format, it only really relates to that asset. So if you had a bunch of data that told you how that asset performs, it doesn't necessarily tell you how to do a better version of that asset because everyone's doing everything bespoke from scratch. So again, I think that standardization of components gives you a repository to put that data and gives you a way of, if you had a, a series of assets developed using those components, you could then measure them against each other. You can see what configurations work or don't. It would start to create some insight that would start to drive that process. So again, I think there's a digital and physical being linked. I think there's something around the standardization of physical components that unlocks a whole raft of digital tools that we won't get our hands on while everything is bespoke, everything's done from first principles, everything's completely unique. It just doesn't create the consistency that I think you'd need to start getting usable data. Mm, that, that's a really interesting point, actually. And, and you mentioned as well about everything at the moment being a prototype. So I guess to reach the scale that we want to reach as an industry, standardization helps that because we're improving the processes across the board. But how then, what would, what would your advice be for companies who do capture data, but everything's done differently? How, how can we get the most out of those data sets being created at the moment? So we're doing some work with the Construction Innovation Hub at the moment, which is it's proving how hard this is actually. So we're trying to get data from different departments So look, give it to us in the format that you would normally use or the way that you normally capture things. What we'll try and do is at least convert it into something that's consistent. So for instance, they all call education spaces, get called a different name, whether it's a department for education or it's a teaching space within a hospital or a teaching space in in a prison. So really basic things, but just trying to get all of their room naming and things into uniclass, getting all the activities into uniclass, getting the way they measure things in terms of lighting levels, temperature, all of those sorts of things, just trying to scrub them and get them into a format which is consistent across departments has been quite hard work because everyone uses their own either naming system or nomenclature or whatever it is. But the power of it, when when we've got it, you can suddenly see how many of the space types within each department are really specific to that department versus how many are quite generic how many of them use common space types? So I talked about education spaces actually pop up in a number of departments. You can suddenly start to see 
what degree of commonality you've got across the departments and across the space types and that would start to tell you something about the components you might need to deliver them the performance requirements so we're getting quite a really useful rich data set across sectors but it, it's been really hard work yeah and it you kind of yeah it, it shows the kind of the nature of the problem that even if people have captured the data getting it into a structured format which is then usable by a range of people is, is quite painful and people aren't necessarily set up to do that and i think there's still the, the classic you know bim gets used up to the kind of delivery stage i still haven't seen many examples of people then actually able to you take that into the operational stage which is where obviously the you know the power of this potentially really lies so there's still that kind of handover from construction to operation is still difficult and but mm-hmm. it's it's the thing that we need to do to properly get that that feedback loop work, working so yeah i don't underestimate the scale of the challenge but also the power of when you've got it it's incredibly powerful yeah, the potential is enormous. And something that keeps popping up on the podcast at the moment is is digital fluency and the nature of the more we become a, a data-driven and digital industry, the more general di- uh, digital skills need to improve. So what's yeah. your thoughts on digital training and um, is it a priority, do you think? Uh, the way we're tackling it, not that I'm saying this is the way it should be tackled, but the way we've been trying to do it is we're trying to get front end user interfaces, which are relatively intuitive and straightforward. So with some of the, you might've seen some of the apps we've been doing, so Seismic for schools, Prism for housing, we've got some other configurators we're doing for, for private sector clients. Generally, we're trying to get a front end, which is dead easy to use. So Seismic is deliberately my, Minecraft because there's a whole okay. generation of people who know how yeah. to interface <laughs> with technology. We want to capture those people. All the kind of cleverness goes into the back end. So there's obviously a huge amount of effort goes into then taking a quite simple user experience, but using that to generate you know, large amounts of proper data that we can, we can pass and interrogate. So I think the, yeah, we're not going to upskill everyone in the industry to become a super user and very data centric and very you know, have the right mindset for how to structure things. I think that's just not going to happen. What we need to do is get the tools that make it easy for them to create proper structured data by making the kind of user interface, making the tools very intuitive to use. And then the back end is the bit that, that has all the, the intelligence in it. So again, not easy, but it's, I think that, that you've got a much greater chance of doing it that way than trying to upskill people because everyone's busy everyone's got their day job uh, yeah. people aren't necessarily got time to learn how to use another tool and another piece of software so you've got to try and make it if it's not making their job easier to do they're probably not going to engage with it and you can tell them about the benefits of big data and they go yeah great i've got to get this report out tomorrow <laughs> come back yeah. to me then that, that's a really interesting point i think well I'd, be, I'd love to get your thoughts on this but with the rise of IoT and things like smart cities and stuff like that, there's more data being created than ever before. But yep. do you think the modern day employees understand the analytical culture that is needed to, to make these more informed decisions? And you kind of picked up on it there about saying if it, if it doesn't benefit them now, you know, it's, it's a bit difficult to, to get them to comprehend that. But sort of what would your take be on making an analytical culture? Again, I just don't think it's it's not naturally in people's heads you've probably seen the uh, you know there's lots of books about this the thinking fast and slow like people work on heuristics so people work on kind of ready reckoners and are, are famously bad at making analytical decisions <laughs> so i think there's something fundamental in you know the, our makeup and the way we've evolved that we're designed to make snap decisions based on imperfect evidence and try and get it right most of the time we're not designed to to make sort of deep analytical things so i don't think we'll change people's nature 
you know, broadly speaking, I think we'll have to work with the people we've got who think like that, work like that, and try and get tools that scale up their capability. So I think, yeah, it's going to be a question of creating the right tools rather than, you know, shifting the mindset of people. It's also, I mean, I think it's going to take just, it's going to take a long time to, to do this. So I was on a call recently about digital twins and some were saying, yeah, di- you know, digital twin of everything is a, it's a 30 year endeavor. It's not going to happen in the very near future. It's a sort of you know, lifetime away. So we have to start capturing things now in a way that will have long-term enormous benefits, but it's not going to be a short-term fix. And again, I think there's a lot of people going, why am I doing this? It's not even, yeah. <laughs> even be my job to sort this out. It's like 25 years away. So um, <laughs> you're not going to convince people to change the way of working for the benefit of a you know, 30 year hence generation so again, I think you've got to make it dead easy for people to engage with this. Otherwise, you just won't get the, get the benefit. People haven't got the time, they haven't got the bandwidth, they haven't got the mental makeup to sit and go, yes, I yeah. should do things in a very particular way because in 30 years, someone will really thank me for doing it. But we've got to put the foundations in place now. In 30 years' time, we'll be going, oh, we still haven't sorted this out. We've still not, not got the data we need. Do you think some of it comes down to not being able to attract the, the next generation of tech workers to the industry? Yeah, I think there's definitely... Yeah, there's certainly a, an image problem. I think it's fair to say in construction. So, yeah, the the image of construction still, when you look at, you know, you see see pictures of it, it still looks biblical, right? It's still people in the mud, in the rain, <laughs> uh, you know, hammering things, and that's just not attractive. As someone showed me the stats of, I think the aging demographic and people leaving construction the next ten, fifteen years, it, you know, the numbers drop off a cliff edge, and there aren't yeah. people coming in because no one wants to work in the industry. So, I think, yeah people who have got those you know tech smarts again i could work in construction but it doesn't feel very digital it doesn't feel very technology driven or i could go and work at a tech company and that looks quite sexy so again the reason we did mine um uh, seismic to look like minecraft was to try and say to that generation who already know how to work collaboratively in a 3d environment actually all the skills you're developing in front of the telly on a saturday morning have got a really valuable place in construction so i mean my when i was a kid I used to look at mountains and things. I go on family holidays and you look at you know, mountains and things and go, yeah, that's a bit. Everyone else will be really excited. And I go, that's just what happens when no one does anything for billions of years. Like if you just leave <laughs> things on their own, that happens. I used to look at cities and go, someone did that, right? Someone went out of their way to design and build that. I want to know how they did that. I want to understand how that works. So I think there's a, yeah, we shouldn't lose sight of that. There's something incredibly powerful, I think, if you could convince the Minecraft generation that they could do that for real on our cities, they go, yeah, that's cool. Why aren't yeah. we all doing that? That sounds much exciting. So yeah, the possibilities are vast. And I think if we can get the tools in place that capture that generation and show them that the skills they've got could be deployed in the real world on physical buildings, I think mm. you know, there's a real opportunity to attract people. And again, the stuff we're doing platforms where we're trying to make it more like manufacturing. So fewer people working much more productively, much more yeah, interesting work. I think, again, there's an opportunity there to change fundamentally change the image that construction has into one that's quite tech driven manufacturing like quite interesting but again collectively we need to we need to make that happen okay so you've mentioned some of the platform work you've been doing but if we talk about platform programs in general why do you think they're so beneficial at the moment and in the future and how would you actually define a platform program to anyone who sort of is listening and they're not entirely sure what that means so very short pitch it's like ikea for construction so if you go to Ikea, which I'm sure the majority of listeners have, actually, it doesn't matter whether you're buying a wardrobe or a bed or a chest of drawers or a shelving system, 
most of the components or a lot of the components are exactly the same. So there's some things around IKEA. So the knockdown fittings, the fact you only need one or two tools, the fact you get a kind of a book, all the things are pre-kitted. It doesn't really matter what you're building. The experience is quite similar and a lot of the physical bits are quite similar. So what we've been trying to do is find that kit of parts for construction. So for example, floor to floor heights are nothing to do with sector. They're based on people. So floor to floor heights tend to be a person height plus some headroom and then plus a zone for structure and mechanical electrical ceiling finishes and things. So most floor to floor heights end up at a space where you can get natural daylight about eight meters into a building before it gets too dark. And so that's why schools and apartment buildings and healthcare wards, for instance, all have about an eight meter span, then a corridor, an eight meter span. That's nothing to do with sector. It's all to do with people. So we've been trying to find, whereas lots of people focus on the differences between sectors and talk about why it's, you know, education so special and residential so special. We've been looking for the commonalities and saying, well, actually, what is the real difference? What is the DNA of these sectors, which is the same? And therefore, how could you drive a kit of parts, which exactly the same components would allow you to build a school or a healthcare ward or an apartment building or whatever it is. The reason we want to do that is because you can imagine if you were using, just like IKEA does, you know, they use the same components, just they make millions of them. And so the cost per component is tiny. But also things like when you used to go to IKEA or, you know, a number of years ago, soft close hinges were a bit of a feature. And if you had an expensive enough kitchen, you'd have soft close hinges. Now everything has soft close hinges because they make so many of them. They're so cheap. It's not worth making the non soft close hinge. And let's yeah. just make one, make loads of them. We'll do it at such a cost that everyone gets them. So again, manufacturing is very good at doing things at sufficient scale that you then get delighters or you get you know additional benefit so we've been saying if you were making using the same components across the dfe estate and parts of the ministry of justice estate and residential and healthcare you would be working at the scale of millions of these components and that then drives the economies of scale that manufacturing's got and what we've been testing is then you can imagine having we use color-coded components for instance so actually to the operative on site, they don't care if they're building a hospital or a school, it's the yellow bracket. So it needs a torque wrench, it needs two bolts. Da, da, da. So again, you can boil construction down to a series of very standardized, very repeatable tasks, which means productivity goes through the roof. We're no longer reliant on trades and workmanship, which means that we could diversify the workforce, we could solve skills gap, we could create loads more manufacturing like jobs. And for each of those components, every gram we take out of material has a massive multiplier. And so you start to get much more optimized components using less material, therefore less carbon, therefore less cost. And so you get this kind of um, chain reaction of benefits that explodes out of just boiling the construction down to a relatively small kit of parts. So that's, yeah, that's what we're trying to do with platforms. I think that ties back to obviously the point made right at the beginning about being able to do more for less and product improving productivity across the board. Yeah, I think it's a it's a fascinating thing. So you mentioned off air about the potential of open source as well. So what role does open source have in in platforms and obviously other industries, particularly uh, things like financial services, have reaped the rewards of of open source. So what's your take on that? The reason we've been doing it, so yeah, as, as background to this, so we've never, I mean, we've been doing this for 25 years, uh, developing various DFMA solutions and developing some of the tools. We've never patented anything. We've never protected anything. 
we've actually deliberately open sourced the code for Prism and Seismic, for instance. The reason we've done that is people can't quite believe this is true, but the, yeah, UN predicts another about 4 billion people are coming. So world population is estimated to top out about 11.5 billion. Two and a half billion more people live in cities by 2050. So if you think about the amount of housing and education and healthcare and transport infrastructure and you know, other mobility, you know, the amount of stuff we've got to build over the next 30 years is absolutely astronomical. And if you look at the current rate with, at which we build things, it's terrible. Productivity is famously very low. Construction is estimated to contribute about 40% to carbon emissions overall. So we've got loads more people coming needing vast amounts of infrastructure that if we don't change the way we do things will be delivered by a very high carbon very inefficient system again it's just not going to work we just aren't going to keep up with the, the demands of the world or if we do we'll you know turn it into a cinder because we'll be just generating vast amounts of carbon so in, in our heads the only way we can possibly keep up with the demands of the world and provide enough stuff for future generations is to to get fundamentally much more productive in the way we work so our view is anyone who's in this space should be contributing what they can to make that happen like there's so much work on the way that we shouldn't be you know it's not a zero-sum game it's not one of these things where if someone isn't getting you know if someone's losing work or giving stuff away then someone else is benefiting and there's so much for everyone to do collectively we have a moral obligation we think to be contributing what we can to, to solving that that problem the problem statement is how do we support 11.5 billion people sustainably on the planet and that's it right yeah. so our view is everyone should be providing what they can to uh, inform that debate so our view is look actually you know, we haven't got time to, to spend ages protecting it also someone's going to nick it we're not really going to spend our lives chasing around the world pursuing patent infringements you know we've got better things to do so our view is actually we're better off putting the stuff out there, moving the debate forward and hopefully contributing to a you know, long-term, better performing world. But that sounds really high, high-minded, but in like 10, 15 years, you know, people are going to be going, oh, we really, really need to sort this out. And it's why I think, you know, the, the Greta Thunberg, it's why the kids are revolting because they know this is coming. It's like every other generation got to kick this problem down the road with sort of the last generation that can really tackle it and do anything about it. Because the next generation are going, if you've left it to me, we're screwed, right? We'll never, you know, we'll never get the temperature down. We'll never sort out the climate crisis. So, yeah, the time surely is to do it now, and it's time to to get over some of our, I think, slightly daft attitudes about IP and things, and and start working together better. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, five years from now, then, where do you think we'll be? It's obviously really hard to predict. There's certainly, yeah, the thing that's I suppose there's a physical element to construction, which means there is a lag time to any of this stuff happening. There's just a cycle of development. By the time you've built a building, it takes a, you know, a, a year or so anyway. I think given the pace of things that have happened in the last couple of years, though that you've got companies like Landsec actually building commercial offices using platforms, there's obviously a huge amount of effort from the government to drive this forward. I think actually COVID is going to accelerate things potentially quite dramatically. So as though we weren't in a, in a, didn't have problems before, I think moving forward, the focus that we'll all have on resource efficiency, materials efficiency, how to do more with fewer people working more productively is only going to accelerate. So I think COVID will hopefully be, you know, some good might come out of COVID. It might be the thing that starts to focus people's attention. And we're all yeah. seeing how you know, globally connected we are. So I like to think that in five years, you know, a significant chunk of government spend will be delivered using the platform stuff that have been developed through the hub. 
I think Boris's build, build, build announcements, I'm hoping that is attached to that is the idea that, yes, we're going to build a lot of infrastructure, but we're going to use it to drive the platform system forward. So I'd like to think that in five years, we'll have a significant amount of test cases or case studies or you know, buildings delivered using platforms. We'll be into that feedback loop and starting to refine them. And hopefully people will be, yeah, it feels like there's a sort of oil well that's just ready to be tapped. It feels like there's enormous pressure for this. If we could just build the first couple of yeah. platforms buildings, it would explode. And there'd be loads of people going, ah, yes, count me in. I'm helping. So I like to think that in five years, we'll have transformed the industry, not completely, but to an extent where people can see that you know, it's gained so much momentum, it's at a tipping point, and it's just going to keep rolling. I think if in five years, we're still having this conversation, then yeah, we've got huge problems on the way. If we haven't done something quite significant in five years, and we're still having this debate, it's going to be too late, or you know, we'll leave ourselves so much to do, it's going to be almost impossible to, to catch up, I suspect. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. And it, it sounds like the, the opportunity is there and, it, and it's absolutely massive to transform the way that we do things. But at the same time, from what you've said, we're still a little bit lagging behind and in, in we're not really re- ready to handle the vast amounts of data being created. And I mean, we speak to lots of businesses still who use paper trails, for example. So digitizing yeah. processes and, and standardizing for accuracy and data and stuff like that is is still well, a long way off, I guess. But to finish, what would be your top tips then for uh, anyone listening who's, who's forward thinking and, and thinking that they want to get involved in something like a platform program? I would certainly engage with the Construction Innovation Hub. So there's a number of partners from, you know, tier ones, designers, there's a whole range of people working on the, the platform initiative. I think off the back of so you probably heard of Project Speed. That's the government starting to work out. I think what they've seen is that under the right, obviously it took a pandemic, but under the right circumstances, government can actually act incredibly quickly and be yeah. quite agile. I think Project Speed is partly about saying, how do we maintain, keep the governance in place, but maintain some of that speed. So I would watch out for, you know, government announcements are off the back of the Project Speed. So once they've concluded that piece of work, I'm sure there'll be a series of recommendations that say, so here's how we plan to implement that I'm hoping there's a sort of, we're going to implement it like this. It's allied to the hub. You might have seen the hub put out their value toolkit, which is looking at how do we procure things. And again, I think this is going to be a big theme in the next sort of few years. How do I procure things, not just for the cheapest price, but the best overall value add. Yeah. So I'm hoping that there's a real consistency in all of that kind of cluster of policy, documentation, case studies, toolkits, etc. So I'd encourage people to look at all that stuff, read it, keep a view on what government is doing because I think this is going to come from government first in the way that BIM did and start to try and work out how you could start to shape your offer or your business around the things that are coming so we're hoping we're going to you know we'll be publishing everything that we do I've been trying to get people to engage with things in the hub and say do you recognize some of the problems that we're outlining in terms of fragmentation and siloing and the you know the way that we currently do things do you recognize those and you're there in business can you conceive of, if you were doing this, what it would look like? Could you start to imagine how you might shape your offer? Because potentially the changes are quite quite big. And what we've yeah. seen in, say, particularly the music industry, when you know, MP3s and then Napster and things came along, you know, for a long time, the, you know, Warner Brothers and all the big guys resisted it because it was massively disruptive and commercially it changed their model. But actually, eventually everyone got the hang of it. Like, you know, you couldn't stop it. You could just get the hang of it. And I, I'm hoping people start to see the same thing and say, look, there's going to be a, I think, irresistible drive to change the industry. I think the people who embrace it and get ahead of it have probably got a good opportunity to really 
do something massive in the future or you know get some real benefit i think the people that resist it will be resisting it until the point where they drop off a cliff edge and so yeah i, I suspect there's going to be some big shifts coming and I'm, yeah, I'm hoping people engage with it and see it as a benefit and see it as a positive and see it as an opportunity to create a better world rather than just a pain which is going to disrupt their commercial model yeah i think that's a really important point as well to do it for the right reasons yeah it sounds sort of those who fall behind the laggards will will really struggle in the future but we'll add a link to the hub in the show notes as well so anyone listening who wants to find out a bit more about it and um, the link will be in the show notes but jamie thank you very much for coming on i'm, I'm sure everyone found that as as interesting as i did um so really appreciate it no thanks a lot again thanks for the invite and uh, yeah thanks for talking to me great stuff thanks for listening everyone